0: And welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. We'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case and pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de identified for learning purposes. I'm happy to welcome today's co host, Jordan Ma. Jordan is an ID fellow at the University of Calgary. He did his MD at the University of Toronto, followed by an internal medicine at McGill University. He has an interest in tropical medicine, immigrant health, and tuberculosis. Welcome to the show, Jordan.
1: Thanks for having me, Sarah. Um, and today, as one of our guests, um, I brought Dr. Elon Schwartz. I thought I'd introduce uh, Canadian people as well to the show. And so Dr. Schwartz is an assistant professor at the University of Alberta. Uh, he completed his infectious disease residency at University of Manitoba, followed by, by a PhD at the University of Antwerp in Belgium, where he studied clinical environmental aspects of a novel fungus described as Emergomyces africanus. Uh, Following this, he undertook a research fellowship at the San Antonio Center of Medical Mycology in Texas, and he is a clinician researcher with an interest in mycology and and immunocompromised hosts. He's a world-renowned expert in the field of mycology with over 100 peer-reviewed publications. Um, He's a fellow of the European Confederation of Medical Mycology and a co-author of the ECMM Global Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Endemic Mycoses.
2: Thank you for having me and for the kind introduction,
1: Jordan.
0: Yeah, so I'm really glad you guys are here. Technically, now, Febrile is a North American show we are expanding. Um, And that was part of Jordan's pitch. He's like, I really think it'd be awesome if we could have um, some representation from Canada. So I'm so glad you guys are here. I'm very grateful. Um, And before we start, I always ask, as everyone's favorite culture podcast, we'd love it if you could share a little piece of culture that brings you happiness, Ilan.
2: Sure. So uh, so that would have to be traveling with my family. Um, I've got uh, a, a lovely wife and two children. They are now seven and five. And so um, by nature of, of sort of where I've trained and worked um, thus far in my career, we've lived all over the place. And so they, um, they love to travel. And uh, unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic has put a little bit of a dent in that, but we've just... Yeah adopted some of our um adapted some of our travel habits to um explore places that are are near um around alberta and and elsewhere in canada so um so they're they're my uh my my biggest joy for sure
0: love it Um, And so our consult question today is about a 50-year-old female with fever, cough, pancytopenia, and an abnormal chest CT. And so I will throw it over to Jordan to fill us in on the case.
1: Okay, so we have a 50-year-old female who presents with a 10-day history of fever up to 39.9 degrees Celsius. She also has a several-week history of undifferentiated fevers with pancytopenia. Now, she had recent travel back to Vietnam, her home country, roughly two months prior where she visited rural Vietnam, and since then, she's noted this mild cough, 20-pound weight loss over several months, as well as nonspecific fatigue and malaise. Since being admitted to internal medicine service, she is also requiring supplemental oxygen via nasal prong. In terms of her past medical history, she's known for systemic scleroderma, with an underlying ILD and NSIP pattern, GERD, a previous remote history of pulmonary TB, where she had detailed screening to Canada when she immigrated and received um, treatment for pulmonary TB and was cleared by the TB services here, hypothyroidism, and hepatitis B core antibody-positive negative surface antigen. In terms of relevant medications, she's on mycophenolate mofetil, 1.5 1.5 grams POBID as well as and was previously on steroids two months prior but has not received any biologics. She has no allergies and in terms of her social history uh, she's originally from Vietnam and immigrated here to Canada about 30 years ago and does not have any unusual occupations or hobbies and her workup this thus far includes a uh, white blood cell count a 3.2 a hemoglobin of 105 a platelet count of 121 an MCV of 99, an absolute neutrophil count of 1.7, and an absolute eosinophil count of 0.3. She has normal chemistry and a normal creatinine. And in terms of micro so far, we have COVID-19, which is negative, a respiratory viral panel, which is negative, blood cultures and urine cultures, which are negative, stool O&P negative, and HIV, which is negative. She ultimately gets a bone marrow biopsy, which shows casein granulomas, and a CT chest demonstrates a milliary pattern with bilateral small nodules. So, Dr. Schwartz, can you tell us about your differential diagnosis at this point, And how do you approach a milliary pattern on chest imaging?
2: What are your next steps for investigation? So, um, so basically, we have a, a 50-year-old woman uh, with a history of systemic scleroderma on uh, mycophenolate mofetil. Uh, so she's uh, immunosuppressed. She's uh, originally from Vietnam, but she's been in Canada for 30 years, uh, although she has recently returned to Vietnam, and her symptoms seem to have um, begun since then. She's got systemic symptoms, uh, but there is some respiratory localization. So uh, the the first thing on my uh, differential, the, the uh, disease that, that I think we, we need to to have our disease as our disease of exclusion is TB. I think that's, you know, the first, second, and third most likely diagnosis in this clinical situation. You know, the, the fact that she's got a remote history of TB and has been treated for TB is uh, a bit reassuring because the likelihood of a reactivation after a, um, a full course of, of combination therapy um, is, is very low, however, um, with travel back to to Vietnam recently there is a chance for a more uh, recent um, acquisition of infection and also there's the possibility that she's been uh, in contact with other family members from Vietnam over the the preceding 30 years or so so I, I guess you know to try to uh, whittle this down a little bit further I would like a little bit more information about about where she lives uh, so, um, I, I presume that she immigrated to Alberta since you and I are both located in Alberta. Has she lived anywhere else other than Vietnam and Alberta? Nope. Nope, she hasn't. And um, on her recent trip, can you tell me a bit more about what she was doing while she was there? She was just
1: visiting fam- friends and family there um, after a recent diagnosis of ILD. Um, other than that, she is from a rural village and that's where she sort of spent her time. There wasn't really any sort of unusual, you know, excursions, visits, um, to uh, farms or anything like that, but she was in the countryside. Okay.
2: And, uh, and no, no direct contact with animals while she was? No, no. And, um, this, this seems obvious, but, uh, any contact with anybody known to have TB?
1: No, not that she can remember.
2: Okay. Yeah, so um, so as I mentioned, the you know the top uh, diagnosis on your differential is going to be uh, TB, and there's a few things that are in favor of that. First, the the epidemiology. Um, We know that Vietnam is a country with uh, high endemicity of of TB, and you know we know that whether whether she's aware of a a potential contact with TB, there's you know still the The possibility that she's been exposed the the clinical features are also consistent with uh, tb but of course there's other things that can do this as well Um, but specifically the finding of caseating granulomas on the the bone marrow is um, you know certainly also pushing you towards that uh, direction other things on the differential though that can mimic tb so uh, non tuberculous mycobacteria um, would be uh, certainly could look like this in a uh, a patient who is immunocompromised. You know my my favorite group of organisms, the endemic mycoses, and so uh, the one that you would have at the top of your uh, list based on the epidemiology would be telluromycosis. so previously known as uh, penicilliosis. so this is caused by Teleromyces marnephii, which is highly endemic to Vietnam. Other uh, dimorphic fungi include histoplasmosis, which uh, we don't have a ton of data about the uh, incidence of uh, histoplasmosis in Asia, but it you know, likely does occur there. And we know that uh, it is also endemic, albeit at low levels in Alberta. We would also consider other... Uh, dimorphic fungal diseases like emergent mycosis, which, uh, as you mentioned in my intro, is sort of my favorite uh, endemic mycosis because it's what I studied during my PhD. Um, but with that said, we aren't aware of any cases that have been diagnosed in Vietnam, um, although there have been cases diagnosed in, in China. And, and so there's no reason why that disease shouldn't also extend elsewhere. And um, And it has been diagnosed also in Western parts of Canada, like in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So those would be highest on my differential. I would also consider other uh, unusual bacterial pathogens causing uh, systemic disease with miliary findings. Uh, So nocardiosis would would be on my differential. Whenever I think of nocardiosis, I always add in rotococcus as well, just because to me, clinically, they're they're quite similar, and so it's an easy one to get off your differential. And if by chance you end up being right, then you'll look really smart. <laughs> um, yeah. And then um, uh, those would be the the main fungal and uh, bacterial. So certainly, you know, a lot of viral infections can cause this this clinical picture. And you know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic, and so. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 would be uh, considered, although the the duration of illness at this point sounds uh, fairly long, although it could be an initial COVID infection complicated by other infections, such as pulmonary aspergillosis, for example. Um, And then I would also include on my differential the the category of parasitic infections. Uh, I'm not sure. Exactly which ones would give this particular pattern? You know, certainly, you know, there's there there might be some uh, features in in the uh, the breakdown of the CBC that might lean us more towards that that diagnosis. And then and then of course uh, we would also consider non-infectious etiologies, malignancies, for example. We know that she's got autoimmune disease, and so other autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis with nodules or sarcoid uh, would also be on your differential. Um, and then also uh, drug toxicities. It, it sounds like there hasn't been a recent change. She was previously on corticosteroids. Now she's on like and kind of like uh, But no recent changes to those? Occasions. No, that's correct. Yeah, okay. So that that would put uh, a little bit lower on your, your differential, but you would uh, consider it as well.
0: That's a really... Awesome overview, you know certainly for this patient. But I think when we need to have a broad differential for someone who comes in with a miliary pattern on imaging, and so what do you think as far as the evaluation we should be asking for?
2: Yeah, so so given the the differential that I mentioned, so certainly uh, you would want sputa either uh, expectorated or induced sputa for for acid fast bacilli as well as for. For prolonged incubation of fungal culture. You would uh, ideally like a, a bronchoscopy if uh, if a good sample isn't forthcoming. So in addition to uh, mycobacteria and fungal uh, culture, you would want a cytopathology examination of, of a lower respiratory tract specimen, so ideally from, uh, from BAL. From the Uh, the perspective of possible viral diseases you would want. um, If you have access to a BAL specimen, then you would want to run a full uh, viral panel on there, including for uh, COVID-19, as well as CMV, varicella, uh, although the acuity doesn't sound particularly uh, consistent with that. Um, But uh, certainly you would want to have a... Uh, a a cytological examination of uh, BAL fluid. If it was really frothy, then it might make you think of a diagnosis like uh, PJP, for example, um, and and certainly would help to exclude malignancy. Other ways of trying to get to uh, the diagnosis of possible TB or uh, endemic mycosis. So um, you, you already mentioned that there was a bone marrow biopsy done. I'm not sure if there were any Uh, mentions of uh, special stains done on that biopsy but certainly you would want to speak to the pathologist and make sure that they're looking for AFB and for uh, for fungi. Um, Ideally the uh, bone marrow aspirate would also be sent off for uh, for fungal and mycobacterial culture. In addition to that you would want um, a a lysis centrifugation blood culture bottle and so that would be Uh, for the purpose of uh, diagnosing either either a mycobacterial infection or an endemic mycosis as well as uh, sending off serology so antigen testing and uh, antibody testing for uh, histoplasma Uh, there are really good diagnostics for teller mycosis but they are not available to us in um, in canada or the united states Uh, so unfortunately that would not be uh, possibility, but with uh, disseminated infection, we would expect to also uh, ideally culture it from uh, either the bone marrow uh, aspirate or from uh, from blood using a, a lysis centrifugation bottle. Okay, so um, we did uh,
1: three induced sputums, which were negative for AFB. Ultimately, she is taken for bronchoscopy and a BAL, and so bacterial, fungal, and mycobacterial cultures are sent um, on the BAL. The AFB is smear negative, and there is a negative gene expert. And she has a, a Legionella and PCP uh, PCR, which is negative. Um, she also has a COVID nineteen and respiratory viral panel, uh, which is negative, and a um, galactomanin index is zero point one one, as well as a negative Aspergillus antigen. And so at this point, um, what would you do for
2: empiric therapy of this patient? So, I mean, the first thing is that we want to make sure that this patient is isolated with an uh, airborne isolation. And, you know, I think the, the, the plan for empiric therapy is going to depend in part on, uh, on the clinical status, vital signs, you know, how, uh, how sick the patient is. You know, if, if I was pushed you know, based on a a non-stable patient, then certainly I would uh, initiate empiric therapy for uh, tuberculosis. I I don't think that there would be a role at this point for either empiric antifungal or uh, antibacterial treatment. I I think that we uh, likely have time to, uh, to work up the diagnosis a bit more. Okay. And
1: so while in hospital, you know, she's still requiring a bit of oxygen, two to four liters. And so she's empirically treated by the ID service for smear negative tuberculosis with RIPE. Um, her immunosuppression was held at that point. And then a workup was sent for endemic mycosis, but this is sort of a, you know, an afterthought. So spending specifically for blasto and histo. Um, and ultimately she was discharged home with a plan for OPAT uh, for follow-up in OPAT clinic. So while she's receiving, you know, uh, these anti-tuberculous medications, she's noted to have these cutaneous lesions found on her scalp, um, which were sort of ulcerative. And there were sort of numerous um, and erythematous at the base. And so ultimately, one of these were biopsied and showed fungal elements with yeast forms. Now that is seen in OPAC clinic. And looking back, at some of the workup that was done in hospital, she has a urine histoplasma antigen, which comes up, ends up coming back positive, along with positive antibodies for histo-M, as well as H. And she was ultimately diagnosed with disseminated histoplasmosis. She gets readmitted to the uh, internal medicine service for induction of Amphil-B, um, but for only one week, as she wanted to go home quickly. And then later, she's transitioned to po itraconazole. And so at this point, uh, Dr. Schwartz, can you tell us a little bit more about uh,
2: histoplasmosis? Sure. So uh, histoplasmosis is an endemic mycosis caused by uh, fungi within the genus histoplasma. It was previously thought that there were uh, three species, two that infect humans, being histoplasma capsulatum and uh, histoplasma uh, duboisii, or uh, some people would say Uh, Capsulatum subspecies, Duboisiae. However, we now know that the genetic diversity of the genus is is much vaster than previously appreciated, and so uh, there are at least seven different uh, species within the the species complex of Hisoplasma capsulatum. The the fungus has more or less a worldwide distribution. Uh, There certainly are areas that have higher geographic risk. Uh, Classically, the uh, Ohio and Mississippi riverways, as well as uh, Latin America, so uh, Central America and South America have uh, very high rates of, of uh, histoplasmosis uh, classically. But you know, the more that that we are uh, investigating it, and, and the better our tools of detection are becoming, the more we're realizing that this truly is a a global illness. And so, certainly, uh, areas that previously would have have been less appreciated for the disease, such as uh, Asia, Vietnam, India, um, and, and much of Africa. We, we now know uh, the fungus is there as well. And so even places where that, that were previously thought not to be endemic, such as Alberta, for example, we now know that histoplasma is uh, endemic, albeit uh, at, at lower levels than uh, in some of those areas that I mentioned. So... Uh, Histoplasmic capsulatum is, uh, you know, like other dimorphic fungi, uh, it's found in ambient environmental temperatures in a mold phase. Uh, Primarily, it's found in soils that are contaminated with bird and bat guano. And the mold has uh, spores or conidia, and those become aerosolized. Anything that's going to disturb the earth is going to increase the likelihood of that happening. Uh, So uh, as those spores become aerosolized, they can become inhaled by uh, different mammals, including humans. And uh, once they're inhaled into the lower respiratory tract, they undergo a temperature dependent transformation to yeast-like cells. Uh, These are small uh, yeasts, about three to five microns in size. They replicate at narrow-based buds and uh, they become engulfed by macrophages and disseminate throughout the body. So there's uh, three main uh, clinical syndromes uh, of histoplasmosis. There is uh, acute pulmonary histoplasmosis, uh, which you know, may be indistinguishable from, from uh, a community-acquired pneumonia or from, um, even in some cases, a, a viral respiratory infection, uh, may be self-limiting and uh, often doesn't require treatment. In some patients, they go on to have a chronic form of the disease, which uh, can either stem from that initial infection or can lay dormant for many years and then reactivate down the road uh, in the setting of uh, immunosuppression or, or other stressors. Um, and then in individuals are, who are immunosuppressed, the third type is progressive disseminated histoplasmosis. Uh, and so this is the disease that we see, uh, particularly in advanced HIV. but other forms of immunosuppression, most notably in North America, um, TNF-alpha blockade, uh, as well as uh, in solid organ and uh, bone marrow transplantation. Uh, So this is a disease syndrome that has very high uh, case fatality. It needs to be uh, diagnosed with a high uh, index of suspicion because it does rapidly progress. Often the clinical picture is indistinguishable from uh, disseminated uh, tuberculosis. Uh, and in fact, uh, um, frequently it's misdiagnosed for TB as uh, occurred in this case, which, you know, I, I think is entirely reasonable given that in most parts of the world, uh, TB still is more common than histoplasmosis. Although that's being challenged in some areas like Central America, where histoplasmosis is now the most common uh, age-defining illness, and, and uh, even outnumbers uh, tuberculosis. Um, but it can be very difficult to diagnose, uh, particularly because these patients often are not expectorating large amounts of, of the fungus. Uh, the, the clinical syndrome is indistinguishable from other diseases. And in the absence of skin lesions, there may not be something that's uh, as obvious to, to sample. And so, you know, often we need to do things like bone marrow biopsies or aspirates. Other ways that you can make the diagnosis are by uh, fungal slash mycobacterial blood culture. Uh, So again, this is that lysis centrifugation method that spins down the the blood and effectively cracks open any uh, any cells exposing intracellular pathogens like uh, mycobacteria or like histoplasma, for example. So that will improve the yield. And then we do have fairly decent culture independent diagnostics for histoplasmosis so uh, specifically the histoplasma urinary antigen test is quite good in disseminated disease it's not particularly good in in chronic pulmonary disease and it's uh, sort of a mixed bag in, in the acute forms of, of pulmonary disease there is also the antibody test which uh, you know doesn't have as good operating characteristics in immune compromised host with disseminated disease yeah. Um I think you mentioned that the M band was uh, positive from the the antibody did you say that Yeah 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 so so the the interpretation of that basically there's two bands the H band and the M band and if they're both present then that's fairly compelling for a diagnosis of histoplasmosis uh, if uh, only the M band is present then uh, that can be seen in either very early disease or in in late disease, but it has a a slightly lower specificity than if they're both there. Uh, And those are the two major uh, patterns that we see. We don't tend to see the H-band on its own uh, quite as often, but again, the the antibody testing has limited utility in uh, disseminated disease in immunocompromised hosts. Those are the, the main diagnostics. Uh, anytime you have a tissue that is that is affected, biopsying it is uh, definitely uh, the best way to secure the diagnosis. So skin lesions, of course, are the most accessible. Otherwise, uh, lymph nodes that are affected, uh, if there's lung tissue that's affected. And then, you know, sometimes if those are absent, uh, we do go looking in, in the bone marrow or, you know, occasionally it's an incidental finding. During uh, a splenectomy, for example, uh, in other uh, reticuloendothelial uh, tissue. So, in tissue, this is a small yeast, so it's considerably smaller than, than, for example, Candida. And uh, again, usually three to five microns in size, which also distinguishes it from Blastomyces, which typically is larger, although there is a form of Blastomyces called Blastomyces helicus, which has been reported in uh, Alberta as well, which is characterized by these small use, three to five microns in size, with narrow-based budding. However, Blastomyces helicus, you can also get these really bizarre configurations where the buds don't separate properly and then they end up forming these strange chains, sometimes with multiple planes involved concurrently. The the main differential from a fungal perspective in this case is teleromycosis. And mycosis has yeast cells that are the same size, but the difference is that uh, it doesn't bud by, or it doesn't replicate by budding, but rather by binary fission. And It's the only fungal pathogen that does that. So if you see the uh, intracellular septum, then that is a pathognomonic for mycosis. Whereas if you see a bud, it excludes mycosis, but it could still be emergomyces, uh, for example, which is... Also, histologically indistinguishable from uh, histoplasma, but it is uh, considerably less common in all parts of the world except for South Africa, which is a, it's where it's about similar in in frequency as histoplasmosis. Uh, so the treatment is fairly easy to remember because we you know don't have a lot of good treatments at all in mycology at this uh, stage. So it's basically the same treatment as for you know, all uh, dimorphic fungal diseases, particularly in severe cases in immune-compromised hosts, there's always kind of the two phases, the the induction uh, phase, which is with uh, liposomal amphotericin B. Typically that's for one to two weeks. Sometimes we'll treat for longer depending on clinical response. And sometimes you can get away with shorter, but, but that would be sort of the standard, usually somewhere around 10 to 14 days. And then before that is uh, complete, we transition to itraconazole. Um, itriconazole is the azole that has the most data behind it. It is uh, superior to fluconazole. There was a uh, randomized control trial in the in the '90s that demonstrated that, but it is uh, not sufficient on its own in the absence of that induction phase. And so we know from Thuy Lee and colleagues in Vietnam. Uh, that, that induction with liposomal amphotericin B really is essential, which is difficult in resource-limited settings because it requires hospitalization. Of course, amphotericin B is associated with a lot of toxicities and requires frequent monitoring. And so it typically does require hospitalization. So once um, the patient is nearing the end of that 14 days, before they have uh, completed it, I start the itraconazole. Uh, about one or two days before then to ensure that they tolerate it. And also because itraconazole can be quite tricky in terms of getting appropriate levels. And so there's two forms of itraconazole that we tend to use. The first is a tablet or uh, or a capsule uh, that is uh, quite well tolerated, but the uh, exposures are fairly unpredictable. And so you do have to do levels after about three or five days and then uh, fairly frequently, at least initially, every couple of weeks or so. The the other formulation that is uh, less frequently used these days is the uh, suspension. And the suspension gets better exposures, uh, but so better levels, but it uh, is more frequently associated with uh, diarrhea. I, I should note that for the capsule formulation, there are tricks to increasing Absorption—it's increased in the setting of, of acidic uh, environments, and so things that are going to decrease the acidity of the GI tract are going to decrease absorption. So concurrent PPI use, so for one thing, as uh, CYP3A4 inducers, there are also issues uh, with uh, with concurrent pentobarazol, uh, for example, and you know a lot of other drugs that use the CYP3A4 pathway. But because of the increase in pH, it can uh, decrease absorption. On the other hand, that can be manipulated by, by uh, consuming that medication with uh, an acidic beverage. So either orange juice or frequently what's used is uh, cola. Although, notably, it has to be regular cola. It can't be diet cola. Uh,
0: <laughs> I actually don't think I knew that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think the brand matters. Um, <laughs> What about, what, some, what about Pepsi? What about Pepsi? <laughs> well, I was going to say, contrary to what people at Emory might tell you, um, <laughs> they've got a bit of a penchant for uh, Coke, but uh, Pepsi is is just fine. But uh, yeah, again, it, it, it can't be diet. Uh, and then you do need to, to monitor. Now, in the United States, they do have a formulation that is much better absorbed called uh, SUBA intraconsol, so it's super bioavailable SUBA. Itriconazole, and um, it's, it's much better absorbed. The dosing is different. So the doses required are, are quite a lot lower uh, and uh, you don't require as, as stringent monitoring, but unfortunately it's not currently available in Canada. Yeah, the the, uh, the duration of therapy depends on the syndrome and on the host. In an immune compromised host with disseminate disease like this, you're gonna treat for at least 12 months. And then at that point, the decision is going to be made, made based on the plan for further uh, immune compromise. So in uh, patients with HIV, you know this is the, the, the easiest, so to speak, because their immunodeficiency is, is reversible. And so once the CD4 count gets over 200 for three to six months or so, you know if it's been at least a year of, of itraconazole, then it's reasonable to stop. In other patients, for example, those on uh, TNF alpha blockade or on uh, anti-inflammatories uh, like mofetil as in this case, then you know it would be reasonable to continue while they remain on that therapy. You can also uh, monitor uh, urinary antigen, uh, and this is recommended in the guidelines to ensure a, a clinical response. Now, in some patients with advanced disease, including disseminated disease who, for whatever reason, don't have a positive antigen test initially, this is more difficult, of course, because there's nothing to follow. So you just have to follow the uh, clinical response and then, you know, make sure that you're treating for long enough, because this is one of those diseases that, you know, if you treat for eight months, you know, it, it may well come back and reactivate. Um, so then, you know, the issue of secondary prophylaxis comes up a lot, particularly with transplant patients living in endemic settings. And for the most part, um, we, we don't use it. If if patients are able to, you know, be reduced on their immunosuppression, then that's that's ideal. But, um, you know, it needs to be uh, addressed on a case by case basis. So that's all I have to say about that.
0: Yeah, I I just want to say this case is is just like a really great example of how disseminated histo can look. And I I so I did residency in Ohio and had a you know a couple of patients that they're like ingrained in my memory and they had disseminated disease and it wasn't thought to be histo at the time cuz it looked like malignancy and there were a couple other features that leaned towards one thing or the other. So I just thought this was a really nice example of sort of the extremes of histoplasmosis and remembering that we probably need to think of it in a lot more places than we sort of classically describe it from outside of Ohio and the river valleys, I guess I should say.
2: Yeah, and, and most of the consults that that I see related to it are in in patients who are, you know, immunocompromised and and uh, there's concern for lymphoma yeah, um, exactly. because of uh, an enlarging lymph node. And so, unfortunately, most of these biopsies aren't sent for culture. Um, but you know, there comes back a report exactly as you mentioned, uh, fungal elements. Uh, and if you really pin down the pathologist, they'll say, "Yeah, it's uh, you know yeast-like cells." And that can be helpful in determining, if not the specific diagnosis, at least the management, because the treatment for emerging mycosis is extrapolated from uh, histoplasmosis, for example.
1: Well. You know, when we get back to the case, um, the plot thickens a bit. Uh, She gets readmitted to the hospital several times throughout the next four months with sometimes worsening skin lesions, worsening dyspnea, and every time she's reinduced with B for 10 to 14 days and then discharged on itraconazole. One of the repeat CT chests shows a worsening millary pattern at one point, and it's kind of hard to read because she has a background of ILD and not a normal CT chest to begin with. Of note, TDM, TDM uh, was done for itraconazole to ensure correct levels, and it was within the therapeutic range. But ultimately, liquid, uh, liquid tr- uh, form was trialed as well. She does have repeat urine histoantigen, uh, which is negative. And then on her most recent admission to the hospital, she also has dysphagia as well as muscle pain, weakness, and worsening dystinium. At the latest visit, because of the failure, pur- purported failure of itraconazole, she's ultimately discharged on voriconazole and seems to be tolerating that okay. And so, um, what do you think could be going on at this point? And is this something you would expect at this point in her course of illness?
2: So, you know, certainly this is not the the typical course. You know, it's I'm not going to say it's a, a straightforward disease um, to treat because it's not. But it doesn't usually result in the, these uh, relapses. And so I think you need to go back to the diagnosis. It's, it certainly sounds like the diagnosis of histoplasmosis was made uh, on, on sound ground. But, you know, could there be a second disease? We know she's got underlying ILD, you know, so could there be a, a component of worsening of the ILD? Is that uh, diagnosis of the ILD correct? Or, or could there be another uh, non infectious etiology that's uh, causing her underlying lung disease? Um, But then on the more acute lung disease, is this, you know, histoplasmosis? Could it be another fungal disease? As I mentioned, the treatment is the same for all of them, so it shouldn't matter. But, you know, could it, could she have a second infection as well? And, and again, we would go back to that initial uh, differential. Uh, Diagnosis and so, of course, TB would still remain a a concern for uh, for epidemiological and and clinical reasons. Even though you know everything that we saw, their initial presentation is is readily explained by by histoplasmosis. And then you 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 do uh, think about whether the drug is is able to to get to the site. So is it being absorbed properly? And so you address this with the the TDM. You know, alternatively is this being driven by, by inflammation uh, that is independent of the, the pathogen itself? And so, um, in other words, is this uh, an immunoconstitution inflammatory syndrome? And, and you know, this is best defined and, and best understood in the context of, of HIV with, with initiation of antiretroviral therapy, although there are you know, a, n- a number of other uh, non-HIV immunosuppressed disease Uh, Diseases that uh, can uh, also manifest with with iris, and so if there's been any changes to her her uh, immunosuppression, her MMF has been changed. One thing that we would think about, you know, anytime you use an azole is is drug drug interactions. You know, MMF isn't one that we typically worry about, but for example, if you had a transplant patient that was on tacrolimus, that certainly would be one, and so. You know, is there a chance that that the immunosuppressant is being metabolized more quickly because of the drug drug interaction? And again, I don't I don't think that's the case here, but it would be something that, that you would consider. the The fact that the urinary antigen has uh, improved is is reassuring. Uh, so that gives you a fairly rough, crude sense of the total burden of the uh, fungus, but the the worsening. Clinically and radiographically suggest that, that there's worsening uh, inflammation. And so, you know, certainly that would be part of your, your differential. There's no test to be able to, to prove the presence of, of iris. Uh, so, t- you know, typically it would be based on the history with regards to you know what's been going on with their immunosuppressants. And then a trial of, of corticosteroids. And, and so it's, it's, it's usually a little bit unsatisfying. That's probably what I would do next. Okay.
1: Um, So, you know, we looked back at her workup, including, and she got a repeat BAL. Um, She ultimately had an infectious workup that was all negative. We did look at the BAL fungal culture, which grew penicillium species, but it was not Teleromyces. And the rest of her TB culture, regular bacterial cultures, PCR, was all negative, negative. The other thing that we were sort of thinking about was, you know, an underlying immunodeficiency. And so in patients from Southeast Asia, so in, you know, Thailand and Taiwan, there has been uh, described interferon gamma deficiency uh, in non-HIV patients. And these patients have, you know, deficits of cellular mediated immunity and uh, present with recurrent NTM, uh, disseminated TB, sort of you know, organisms that cause, you know, reticular endothelial involvement. Um, but ultimately, and so we sent that uh, interferon gamma test uh, out to, I think it was Denver, where they have a center there, which is ultimately negative. And ultimately, she received the di- final diagnosis of iris plus or minus, you know, progression of her underlying I- um, ILD. And, um, you know, she improved on her oral voriconazole therapy at this point.
0: Did you guys... End up treating with steroids?
1: We, we didn't end up treating with steroids just because, I guess, you know, in discussion with, you know, the rheumatologist and whatnot, there was sort of, you know, a lot of uncertainty about what was going on and fear of, you know, worsening her underlying infection. And so ultimately, you know, we didn't end up treating her steroids and she sort of
2: got better without it. Yeah, so I'm glad to hear she got better. I, I think it would be reasonable to, you know, to give a bit of, of prednisone is mm-hmm. probably not going to shift the balance of, of control, especially if there are, you know, other clinical signs of, of improvement. You know, the fact that she's you know generally been improving aside from these, these episodes where she has uh, dyspnea. And then, you know, the other, the other things you mentioned, she had like some dysphagia and, and muscle pain and weakness. And so, you know, of course these are very nonspecific and, and so you would wonder, you know, whether they're related and you also need to consider toxicities of, of the medications. And so, you know, we didn't talk about this, but you know, the major thing that we worry about with itraconazole if it's being absorbed is that it is a a negative inotrope. And so in patients who have um, underlying congestive heart disease Mm -hmm. or you know, maybe are on the cusp. You can sometimes unmask their congestive heart disease with itraconazole. Voriconazole, you know, is probably okay. You know, we think that probably you can treat uh, histoplasmosis with itraconazole or newer azoles. But uh, there is a concerning signal in voriconazole. And this was work out of Washington University um, by Andre Speck and and colleagues that suggested that the Mortality was worse with boriconazole as opposed to itraconazole. Now that hasn't, and you know, probably won't be prospectively validated, and so it's it's hard to know. One thing that I would be concerned about is just because of the duration of therapy, because we're talking about you know at least a year, and it's not clear to me at this point how much she'd already had when she was switched. But you know, once you go over about six months of voriconazole, then you worry about things like uh, phototoxicity, which you know, can just be a sunburn that's uh, inconvenient, but it can be you know quite devastating, and and it's also associated with squamous cell carcinoma, and particularly in individuals who have occupations that are going to put them in a lot of sun exposure, and if they're immunocompromised, and so there's a, a confluence of these risk factors: of duration of voriconazole, um, immune suppression, and uh, sun exposure that all are synergistic and increasing the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. And so uh, that would be a concern over time. And so you could also use something like isavuconazole, which would be you know, considerably more expensive, but would, would also be an option. And posaconazole, uh, I'm not sure there'd be a, a specific reason we would go to that. We don't typically treat uh, histoplasmosis with uh, posiconazole. It's associated with a lot of metab- metabolic uh, abnormalities related to hyperaldosteronism, probably I would avoid that. And, and of course, it has some cost toxicities as well, similar to a You know, one thing when when you think back to this case, you know, somebody who's immune compromised, who's presenting with this systemic syndrome, and you're concerned about disseminated TB, one diagnostic that I, I fail to mention, and we don't think about it a lot because we don't have access to it in North America is... Is urinary lam hmm. or uh, lipoarabinomannan uh, lam, and um, in fact, there's now like a second generation of it, and this is uh, widely used in in some areas where where TB is is hyper uh, in South Africa. They're using it a lot, for example, and it's a a point of care test, and, and basically, it's got very operating a good very good operating characteristics for specifically smear negative disseminated TB in immune compromised patients. So someone you know, exactly like this, um, you know, more, more classically used in advanced HIV. But, um, you know, if we had access to that, that would be something that would be helpful uh, because, you know, again, these, these patients that have maybe miliary uh, lung lesions uh, aren't necessarily, you know, spewing either bacilli or, or fungi in there, you know, if they are expectorating at all. And so it's not it's not unusual to, to not be able to confirm the diagnosis from respiratory samples. And so it would be helpful to, to rule in a diagnosis of, of TB in, in that context. Now, I think of um, urinary histoplasma as kind of filling a similar niche. And so also it's in these uh, sort of smear negative, disseminated uh, cases in immune-compromised patients and, and and doesn't seem to work particularly well outside of that setting, but really does play uh, uh, an important role. And one of the things about histoplasma urinary antigen, you know, until very recently, it was hard to access outside of North America, particularly the United States, because it was a, a send-out lab to uh, to Indiana. But the, the company that, that makes one of the tests, Miravista in Indiana, is now making a lateral flow assay, which is a point of care test, which is really important in, in terms of making it accessible outside of the United States. And so, you know, I think that the, there's a lot of opportunity for, in, in terms of clinical care, but also in terms of research and being able to, to have, you know, these these dual tests of uh, histoplasma urinary antigen and a urinary glam, um, in in places where there's you know, syndemic of HIV associated histoplasmosis and tuberculosis.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank Jordan for creating this amazing case because we covered a lot of ground, but I I will just leave it open one more time. Just see if you guys have any other closing thoughts or sort of uh, teaching points that you really want to reinforce that you learned from this case.
2: Uh, so, I mean, the you know the most important thing in in making a diagnosis of fungal disease is to to think about fungi. <laughs> um, I think we're I think we're pretty good at that in ID because you know for whatever reason because they're so niche, um, you know these these topics are very testable on exams. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know a lot of ID fellows and in, in particular. You know, have have a, a decent understanding of uh, of the endemic mycoses, particularly histoplasmosis. Um, although your you know your your knowledge depends a lot on where you practice, and so um, you know those of us outside of areas where there's high rates of endemicity, uh, sometimes we I think can fail to to consider the diagnosis of, of histoplasmosis or other uh, dimorphic fungi, and so fungi are just the most fascinating group of organisms that are uh, as an author a uh, mycologist Paul Stamets says they're uh, the organisms that are at the interface of life and death. And, you know, they're, you know, often harbingers of, of death um, but they also have, you know, such an interesting life cycle and understanding that life cycle and the, you know, the ecological niche, helps us to understand you know where people may come in contact with it and so there's you know so much that we still have to understand particularly with histoplasmosis which is a a huge scourge around the world so i encourage you know trainees that are listening to this uh, to consider getting more involved in in mycology you know seek out a mentor who has an interest There's usually like one per institution (laughs) and uh come Yeah. Come, come, come join our, uh, our, our ranks.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for coming.
2: Thanks. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And thank you for the great work that you're doing this amazing resource for, for trainees and for, for practicing ID doctors. Really incredible. And I, I, uh, I I commend you for, for doing this, Um, especially as a busy ID fellow. It's it's really quite remarkable. (laughs) So kudos to you, thank and, you. Uh, and thank you, Jordan. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming.
0: Wow, what a jam-packed episode full of anything and everything related to histoplasma and a case of iris. So thanks to Ilan and Jordan for a great discussion. We have one more episode for 2021 left, and that actually will make a full year of Febrile episodes, if you can believe it. So please don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find our consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, as well as a library of ID infographics. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.